This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, June 15th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. This Friday was to be Donald Trump's triumphant return to the big stage, hopefully accessed by some small stairs. But the big rally in Oklahoma planned for Friday ran into a problem. ABC World News Tonight reports. President Trump back here at home reversing course, rescheduling next week's campaign rally. His first since the pandemic began because it fell on Juneteenth, commemorating the end of slavery. Okay, but we can still hold the RNC in Jacksonville, right? Well, News 4 Jax has this item. The Republican National Convention coincides with a brutal day in Jacksonville history, Axe Handle Saturday. This August marks 60 years since African Americans taking part in a peaceful lunch counter protest in downtown Jacksonville were attacked. Wait a minute. We can't hold a rally on June 19th. We can't hold a convention on August 27th. All right, let's take a look at the calendar. How about mid-July? 50 years ago this week, the despair of a city led to devastation on its streets. In Newark, New Jersey, an unfounded rumor that a man had died in police custody triggered five nights of gunfire, arson, and looting that left 26 people dead and neighborhoods in ruins. A half cent- That from the ODNN, the overdramatic news network, except it actually happened in Newark. 26 dead between July 12th and 17th. 1967, a few days later, Detroit, 23 civilians, 16 law enforcement killed. Two days after that, the Milwaukee riots, four killed. So what are you saying? There's almost no summer date that a racially insensitive president can book that doesn't evoke uncomfortable comparisons to our past? Yes, I am saying that. Oh, and it goes beyond the summer. The Atlanta Massacre of 1906, the Memphis Massacre of 1866, the New Orleans Massacre of the same year, the Colfax Massacre of 1873, upwards of 150 black men dead in that one. There aren't many clean days on the American calendar if you want to avoid a bloody anniversary where the blood was of black people spilled by white people. You'd see why a president like Trump doesn't want to confront America's racial sins of the past because they're so reminiscent of his desire to perpetuate versions of those sins in the present. At first, he thought he could leap into and lean into being the law and order president, but he lost standing. It didn't help him. It hurt him greatly in the polls, and now he wants to avoid the issue. But here we are, and here he is in America, a president whose campaigning and governance was explicitly undertaken to have a white nationalist appeal, he's now running away from that brand. It's like he conjured the racial demons for personal gain, and the pollsters told him, oh, those demons aren't working anymore. Now he wants to avoid those associations and just be done with the past. Unfortunately for Mr. Trump, the past is not done with him. In fact, the past is not done with any of us. On the show today, in the spiel, some Sunday sentiments skillfully assembled. But first... We tend to regard the office of the presidency as so important that we 
Forget our country has thousands, maybe even approaching tens of thousands or 10,000 political races also occurring this year. And all of these races have one thing in common. They have to some extent been affected by the shutdown over coronavirus. Now, I'm not going to trouble you with the travails of the North Dakota state auditor. Of course, incumbent Steve Gallion refused to sit for an interview. So let's look to the House of Representatives, the U.S. House of Representatives, and a seat currently filled by a Republican in a district that narrowly went for Barack Obama in 2012 and then Donald Trump in 2016. Joining us next will be Don Bacon, U.S. congressman. He is here to talk positions, policies, and campaigning during COVID. Don Bacon is a retired Air Force general. He also serves Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. It's pretty much all of Omaha and some areas to the West. Now, electorally, Bacon won by 1.2% of the vote in 2016. He was the only Republican to beat an incumbent Democrat. In 2018, he beat Kara Eastman by 2% of the vote, meaning if he stays at this rate, For another 20 years, he'll be at, you know, double digits in terms of his electoral margin of victory. A landslide in six years. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I wanted to talk to Congressman Bacon about campaigning during these times and also about some of the issues before him as a legislator. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So first, let's just talk about, and then I want to get into how you run, how maybe coronavirus disrupted the schedule. First, let's talk about coronavirus. Now, Dr. Ali Khan of the University of Nebraska Medical Center gave a briefing yesterday and said the outbreak is not controlled in Nebraska by any set of criteria. And per capita, Nebraska is one of the hardest hit states. What has dealing with COVID-19 and coronavirus been like for your state? Our primary infection areas were the meatpacking plants that were hard hit. And then our nursing homes and retirement centers were hit pretty hard. But, you know, outside of that, it was not. But I don't want to minimize what, you know, the, the harm done for the meatpacking plants and our nursing homes. They were tragic. Uh, we had a very high infection rates with our meatpackers. And, of course, that became a national emergency because meat production was down about 30 or 40 percent, which the prices for meat then doubled in America. And then a lot of our ranchers were going out of business because the price of meat going into the meat processing plants were reduced. But for campaigning, you know, a lot of folks uh, didn't want to talk about political stuff for two months there, and I don't blame them. So our focus was to do constituent services and to make sure people understood what was in the CARES bill, the Paycheck Protection Plan, for example, and make sure that the banks had resources at the SBA to ensure that we could answer questions. And I did a lot of volunteer time. You know, we were out going to food banks, homeless shelters, and we were working. That was the best way to be with our constituents. Folks didn't want to talk about politics. They don't really care if you're Republican or Democrat uh, during the COVID when they're out of work, but they did care uh, that we could get our economy back moving at some point and do what we needed to do when the COVID virus uh, was a big threat. So you were campaigning, though, or engaged in constituent services, engaged in helping the people uh, who you serve, and yet, I would imagine that if there wasn't a coronavirus, there'd be a certain schedule. Were there any kind of events that you would be doing that you couldn't do because you couldn't have a large gathering or because people couldn't turn out for a rally or something like that? Yeah, we had multiple political events scheduled back in February and March for the next two months that we had to cancel. Whether you're a challenger or an incumbent, you know, you have to do political events. Some of it's fundraising, some of it's rallies. 
or combinations thereof. Nebraska was a, was a little more permissive environment. It was more volunteer stuff versus maybe New York where it was more legally controlled by law enforcement. But all the same, yeah, I canceled multiple events. And really what our focus was constituent services, helping people uh, get the support they needed, and going out and volunteering in the community. Do you think that it impeded you more than your uh, opponent, who it looks like will be Kara Eastman again, or do you think that you were both essentially playing on the same playing field? You can look at it a couple different ways. I would say this, and I'm a very transparent person here. You say, you're interviewing the right guy. Good. <laughs> I think the, uh, you know, the Democrats have an advantage in, in this situation, I believe, because they are much more advanced in digital fundraising, which they could continue during the COVID. So, you know, a lot of my opponent's fundraising comes through Act Blue, the Justice Democrats. So there's a lot of networks in California and New York. And I think that those can keep going. But Democrats, by and large, have an advantage in the digital. And the Republicans are playing catch up in that area. And so I think in this environment, the digital fundraising was an advantage. Now, I would say on the other part of this, though, I did a lot of stuff in my official capacity that was not campaigning, but yet we're working with the constituents. So I think there's an advantage there when you're in an official position. I mean, I talked to 200,000 people in March and April in our district through virtual town halls and all the different messaging that we were doing. So there was an advantage there. And, you know, most incumbents get that kind of advantage because you're, you're doing the work for the constituents. And even if it's not political, uh, folks see you working. So I think there was an advantage mm-hmm. there. So, you know, it depends what angle you're talking about here. In some areas, I would say my opponent probably had an advantage. In other areas, I did. When the layman starts paying attention to a political race, maybe sometime around Labor Day, the professional will have been laying the groundwork. So maybe if you draw a thousand people for a rally in September, it's because you're building upon the 500 that you drew for a rally in June and the 100 beforehand. Do you expect that sort of effect to occur that because you couldn't plant the seeds over these last few months, we'll see a different sort of campaign by the end when everyone watching? Well, I do think it's going to be slowed. I would have been doing much more door-to-door. I have probably one of the best ground games of any of the Republicans in Congress. I, you know, I've averaged... Which is ironic for an Air Force general, is it not? (laughs) Yeah, well, I I love air superiority, but it's not applicable here. That's right. (laughs) And so we average the last two cycles, 150 young volunteers on our team. We have a really good door-knocking team and a really good calling program. So we had to put on hold the door knocking end of that. But we did door knocking last summer and fall. We did 30,000 doors in this district. You got to have a plan almost the entire cycle. There's different phases. You don't do TV the whole time, but you do that at the end. But door knocking and and calling is about a two-year plan in your cycle. So I would say Mm -hmm. we're a little farther behind. But, you know, in the primary, uh, the Republicans significantly outturned the Democrats this time in my district. Whereas two years ago, we had an 8,000 disadvantage. This year, we had about a 3,000 advantage. And that's a huge turn. So I don't know how it will really manifest itself come around November. You know, there's a lot of external factors that play into energy in a campaign. Right. I'll be out walking the ground through November on a sporadic basis. So when you do in the near term, will you wear a mask? I will. I will. You know, I, I always take one with me. You know, in some areas... When you're working with folks and they're not wearing them, I try to sort of blend in with what, if I'm in an office environment, what that office is doing. Mm -hmm. But I always carry one with me. 
And going door to door, I would I would take the mask with me. Yeah, because I know how masks have become politicized. So I think there are a few factors. Maybe some people you'd knock on their door and they will resent it. But maybe some people will think that if you don't wear a mask, then that is being uncivil. And I know you're a member of the Civility Caucus. So there are a few considerations, I think, given how political just everything, including pieces of fabric, have become. Yeah, I'm not sure why wearing a fabric has become so political, but I mean, I see it myself. I've had Democrats say, Don, you better not go out without your mask. You have some Republicans that have the opposite view. I take it with me wherever I go because I typically, go, my going in notion is I'll wear it. And, but if, right. you know, if I'm in a, in, in a unit where nobody's wearing it, uh, you know, I'll sort of, I sort of fit in. One thing I do do, right. I wash my hands incessantly because I think that's the most key to staying healthy. Yeah. Well, there is a logic, actually, not to wearing it when people aren't, unless you have the respirator, the point of masks right. is to is for the mask wearer not to spread it. And if no one around you is wearing a mask, then maybe you don't uh, owe that courtesy to them. I'm just being honest. I, I try to fit in where I go. If, if people are wearing them, I'm wearing it. If they're not, you know, I don't. And I just try to uh, blend. You know, like a lot of our TV uh, stations, they force their uh, interviewers to wear the mask. So I'll do it out of, out of respect and, and courtesy for them. So I just sort of uh, blend in with what, what's going on. Have your constituents blamed the federal government or specifically the Trump administration for a poor response to the pandemic? Well, I would say some of the partisan Democrats have, but I don't think the rank and file middle America has. I think most voters in Nebraska feel like that generally the right things were done at the national level, but also at our state level. I think our governor here is by and large uh, had pretty good favorable ratings on how he's responded. We're in a federalist system so the national government has some roles, but our states and counties and local governments have just as important roles uh, for the local area. And so it's, it's a blended responsibility. So what I'm hearing is it's not a headwind for you in terms of campaigning, just in terms of the persuadable voters. Yes, the people who will vote Democrat no matter what, they might have criticism, but it hasn't affected your strategy or campaigning. Okay, so what about the latest with the protests over George Floyd? If you look at the president's approval rating, it has gone down in a measurable way. Has that been a headwind for you in terms of getting out there and convincing people that a Republican is the best to serve them in Congress? You know, I would say not yet, but I think it's still unfolding. You know, I was at a rally last week and the mm -hmm. speaker there, a pastor and a, a, a wonderful man, you know, said, here, Don Bacon's in the audience. This man has been with North Omaha and the African-American community since he's been elected and he's never left us. So I'm not a Johnny come lately with our African-American community at all. I've been working, I've probably done more and that, that part of town that I have done anywhere in my district. And so I would say I've worked hard. I've gotten five or six different projects that I've worked on that are focused on our community in North Omaha. And so I think I've had, I've delivered results. But you ever know, you know, when the head of the ticket is struggling, it's going to affect somewhat down right. the ballot. Or if he's doing better, it's going to have a positive effect. So there, I wouldn't say it's a one for one, but there is some impact that will happen Right. You issued a four-sentence statement, and I'll read it for my audience. 
Law enforcement matters are best left to the police with National Guard assistance if they request it. Although the president does have the legal authority to intervene with federal troops, this should only be used as a last resort. I am pleased to see recent statements by Secretary Esper and the president that they don't believe such intervention will be necessary. I agree with General Mattis that, quoting him, we must summon unity to surmount this crisis, confident that we are better than our politics. I want to specifically ask you about that invocation of General Mattis. You didn't have to do that. He issued a searing critique of the president's actions. It's notable to me that you would quote General Mattis in your statement, associating yourself with his remarks. Why did you think it was important to quote General Mattis in this statement? Well, I agreed with that statement for General Mattis. Like I said, I didn't agree with his whole uh, statement. But I do think General Mattis has a point. We want, whether it's the president or any of us, to have a more unifying message. We don't need to be destroying ourselves and vandalizing each other's property or, or committing violence against each other. And I just think the acrimony in the last year or two is so off the chart. By the way, I've served with General Mattis in different ways during my career. And uh, it was one of our my units as a commander that helped him out when he was a two-star in Iraq. And we helped detonate an IED before he got to it that was destined to target him. And uh, so he's got a great statement that Compass Call, that was the aircraft that I was in charge of, saved his life. And I've always appreciated General Mattis as a general. I think he's one of the best combat generals we've produced since World War II, frankly. So uh, he has my admiration. I like the job that he did as the Secretary of Defense. I don't think he was quite on target, though, with this last statement. He didn't talk about the violence that was being done. You know, the Lincoln Memorial is defaced. The World War II Memorial is defaced. The AFL-CIO building was burnt. That 205-year-old church was firebombed. So a lot of these issues, people want to make it a 100 or a zero. And I don't, right. see, I don't think it's that simple. <laughs> I think there, there are some things I agree with what he said, and there are some things I think General Mattis was not on target. Yeah, well, that, it doesn't surprise me that a guy who's won elections with, you know, 48 and 48.7 percent of the vote would not see things as 100 to nothing. And listeners should know that you are one of the few members of Congress. Well, I guess uh, everyone who who represents a state at large is in this camp, too. But your electoral district has its own electoral vote in the Electoral College. Maine and Nebraska do it that way. And the second, it did go for Barack Obama, which was, I think, the first time a Democrat won since 1964. And uh, Donald Trump just won very, very narrowly. So that's the background to ask, is Donald Trump, is your association with Donald Trump a hindrance, a help, and has that changed since the last election? Well, he won by about three points uh, last time. I thought I had more total votes, but when you start throwing in third-party candidates, uh, my margin of victory was less, if that makes sense. Yes. And so, yeah. and I defeated an incumbent Democrat when I came in, so this is a clearly a purple district. Fact is, if you look at margin of victory, I haven't done the work myself, but I read this, that we're the sixth most competitive district in the country by margin of victory going back over the last decade. So to, mm-hmm. just puts it in perspective, it's a tight district. The normal win is two points. That's, a, that's the typical victory going back a decade uh, in this district. And so I, I don't think your uh, question's easy to answer in that particularly my voters, at least on the Republican side, they support President Trump by like 96%. More for his policies, not necessarily all the statements on Twitter, but uh, the policy side, they're pro-life, uh, pro-Second Amendment, want to have lower taxes. Most of the policy sides, the Republicans are 96%, if you look at the polling data, on board with that. Will you be voting for President Trump in 2020? Absolutely. When it comes between him and Joe Biden, not only me, but this district would fall behind President Trump on those top five issues. 
But for, to win this district, I also have to appeal to independents and moderates. And there's no doubt about that. And, you know, if you look at like my Luger score from the Luger Center, I'm right in the top seven. Index, yeah. Yeah, I'm right in the top 7% of Congress uh, on that. And I think from that, I've been able to get endorsements like Joe Lieberman's endorsed. The previous Democratic nominee for governor endorsed me. Uh, our only Democratic mayor in the district endorsed. And the guy who ran the Democratic Party for almost four years in Nebraska endorsed me. And we have more coming. And so I feel like I've been able to also reach into the independent and moderate Democrats. And I have to do that to win this district. You cannot win just with your base. But you can't lose your base either. So it's a, it's a, yeah. so to answer your question, it's, a, it's not a simple answer. You can't lose your base, but you cannot win with just your base. Don Bacon represents Nebraska's second district in the United States Congress. Thank you so much, Representative Bacon. It's an honor to speak to you. And now the spiel. It's the Sundays, the awards for best quotes on the Sunday shows. The first Sunday award is the award for you think you're arguing for your interests, but you're arguing against them. And that goes to Dr. Ben Carson. The HUD secretary was asked by Chris Wallace of Fox News Sunday, should we be taking the Confederate general's names off these bases. You probably know that uh, many of the bases were named after Confederate generals as a conciliatory movement after the war. And uh, to now change that would be having exactly the opposite effect. That is exactly correct. What we want to do is communicate the opposite of conciliation to the adherence of a racist separatist movement that opposed the government of the United States. Yes, I understand the reason the bases were named for racist traitors is that we were engaged in a racist traitor pacification scheme. And now I do think it would in fact be better to communicate that we are involved in a racist traitor repudiation project. You realize if you took General Bragg's name off of Fort Bragg, you would in fact be insulting all that General Bragg stood for. You'd be aligning yourself in opposition to him. Yes, I know. That's exactly what we want to be doing. Next up, the Sunday Award for Best Evocation of Malcolm X. It goes quite slyly to Senator Cory Booker, who said this on Face the Nation. Because if, you, if someone's knee is on your neck, you can't take it halfway off and say that that's progress. Do you hear what he did there? Did you hear the echoes of history? Because here's Malcolm X from 1964. You feel, however, that, uh, that we're making progress in, in this country? No, and no, no, no. Uh, I will never say that progress is being made. If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. Mm -hmm. You pull it all the way out, that's not progress. The progress is healing the wound that's the blow, that's the blow made. And they haven't even begun to pull a knife out, much less try and pull, uh, heal the wound. Malcolm, I never know if to call him X, you know, X, Mr. X, ended the quote by saying, they won't even admit the knife is there. All right, so this is where I began to think about the present. Maybe after weeks of protest and nonstop activism and scenes of horrible police overreaction, a national discussion and 
documented attitudinal changes in the polls, maybe that at least indicates that we, most of us, the collective us, most of us are admitting that the knee actually is on the neck, that the knife is in the back. He's right. It's not the same as saying we're making progress, but admitting it is something. Of course, what this progress, what it could result in, is the sort of progress that we've gotten on gun reform, where large swaths of the American public, white and black, both want change, but due to entrenched interests and obstructionist politics, that change will be denied. So that won't be progress. All it will be is extra frustrating. So what I would say is we've perhaps changed our minds about whether to knock on the door of progress. It doesn't mean we'll be met with the right answer or any answer at all. And finally, here is the Sunday Award for Best Mishearing, Intentional or Unintentional, of a Host's Question. The host was Jake Tapper, and the interviewee was Larry Kudlow, this from CNN's State of the Union. There's no problem with it. If everything's fine with it, great. But, I mean, otherwise, it is about as swampy a deal as I can ever imagine. The government giving out hundreds of millions of dollars, and the American people don't even get to know who got it. Well, I don't know that I would judge it that way. I don't think it was sloppy. Again, swampy, I repeat. Swampy, swampy. Not sloppy, swampy. Swampy, Larry, swampy. Kudlow pivoted to say, and by the way, Jake, your past comments that it was wrong for the president to advise using ultraviolence, I disagree. The president saying we should hit the body with ultraviolence, or as he says, ultraviolence light, by which he means the right amount of violence, also known as dominating the street with compassion, That was the right thing to say, not the wrong thing to say. And I can't understand why you would say it, Jake. After all, you also said that his brain has turned to a gold rush. I actually said cold mush, but whatever. This has been the Sundays. They occur every Sunday without fail, especially if I'm taking notes. And that's it for today's show was produced by Margaret Kelly, the associate producer of The Gist. She's thrilled that the Supreme Court made a great ruling for LGBT workers, or as Lawrence Kudlow heard it, eligible bead workers who, you know, they definitely deserve protections. Little beads, small fingers, you know, could cause a cramp. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. To be fair, he didn't know about Axe Handel Sunday himself. But to be doubly fair, he also didn't recently give an interview to Fox News comparing himself favorably to Abraham Lincoln, who he said, you know, did all right. But in the end, the results were questionable. The Gist. Now, I did say Civil War generals, but let me read a description of Fort Rucker in Alabama. It is named in honor of Colonel Edmund W. Rucker, a Civil War Confederate officer who was given the honorary title of general. Given. Given by who? By the Confederacy. And that implies that the title of colonel, well, that at least was legit. So I said we need to bust this guy down to private and then take his base away from him. And then take his name off the base. Oomperu depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.